You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is about how technology impacts our teaching of yoga and mindfulness. If you're curious about online teaching, meditation apps, and how technology is changing our culture, I think you'll enjoy today's conversation. I grew up in a world of telephones hooked to the wall, of driving to the video rental store to choose a new movie on VHS, and rewinding those movies when I was finished to avoid a fine. Video games were limited to the cartridges that we had access to and I had access to very few. I would basically get a console and get the game that came with the console and then maybe one or two other games. Computers were pretty boring. You could write on them, you could play a few simple games, but there were not the endless avenues for procrastination that are now available. There is no question that the past three decades has seen an explosion. We living in this time have seen an explosion of technology permeating every aspect of our lives. Whether we've personally embraced this technology more or resisted it more, either way, it has an enormous impact on us. It has an enormous impact on our students and the people we love. While the long-term effects of this new technologically-based culture remain to be fully understood, we only need to look around us to see profound cultural changes everywhere. Families out to dinner, each focused on their personal screen as they wait for food. Interactive maps that show you exactly where you are and whether or not you're going in the right direction. A new norm for meeting partners. Teenagers who are so accustomed to texting that the idea of making a phone call produces anxiety. As yoga teachers, we're also seeing the rise of online yoga and mindfulness platforms. On the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group associated with this podcast, questions and concerns about apps and online teaching are frequent. If you're not yet a member, you can join by going to teachingyoga.net slash join. Many yoga teachers would like to teach online, but aren't sure about the best way to do so. I also hear about concerns on how in-person teachers and trainings can compete with the low cost and easy accessibility of online platforms. My guest today, Alex Haley, and I discuss these questions and many more on today's podcast, all about the intersection of mindfulness and technology. Alex is a meditation teacher. He's a former co-manager of a donation-based yoga studio, and he's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. Alex also co-founded the Benefit Corporation Offering Tree, which is an online platform that offers a website, payment, and scheduling features for wellness professionals. Alex leads the mindfulness program at the University of Minnesota's Center for Spirituality and Healing. He teaches undergraduate and graduate courses. He assists with clinical research 
and helps support mindfulness programming for public nonprofit and for-profit corporations. His areas of study include mindfulness, embodiment, behavior change, and designing online virtual reality learning environments. Alex is also a graduate student in the Cognitive Science PhD program at the University of Minnesota. As you'll hear in the interview, Alex is super smart and extremely thoughtful and articulate. I think the conversation around how those of us interested in human well-being use and relate to technology is extremely important in our tech-driven world. Alex, you have a really interesting perspective, I think, being both a practitioner and also an academic. And I'm curious, what do you think, what is that like for you? And what do you think the benefits and drawbacks are of each lens? Yeah, I um, appreciate that I get to see multiple perspectives um, on the areas that I'm involved with. So that's often uh, mindfulness, well-being, uh, sometimes yoga. And being able to be both a practitioner and an academic and researcher allows me to um, really see all of that from different vantage points. And I find it so helpful. So sometimes if I'm just on the practitioner side, I sometimes forget about the uh, open questions that are still out there that we maybe don't have uh, really great answers to. And so when I am back on the academic and research side, I really get to look at those questions and say, well, there's a lot that we still don't know. And then similarly, if I'm on the research or the academic side, I get to put on my practitioner hat and say, well, that's okay if we don't know. There's still some things that practically speaking, a lot of people find useful. So let's start with that. What are the things that we are pretty confident that we know about mindfulness and about meditation? And what are the things that are really more of an open question right now? In terms of what we can say about mindfulness, and this is really from the perspective of um, more than one study. So one of the phenomena that is very common these days is for there to be a very sensational, sound, sound bitey title in, in the news, like uh, mindf you know, mindfulness uh, is able to cure pain or uh, meditate or medicate. And those are you know, pretty provocative statements. So there's uh, a lot that uh, we want to unpack with that. And in particular, it means looking at what do these larger systematic reviews or meta-analyses, which basically means they're studies that are looking at multiple studies, that are looking at the quality of the original studies, and they're saying, are the findings similar uh, across multiple studies? And what can we actually say? And when we look at it from that perspective, we find that the research suggests that mindfulness is helpful for stress, for anxiety, uh, for a subset of depressive symptoms. Beyond that, um, there's a lot of open questions. And often in the media these days, I'm seeing a lot of these larger claims of mindfulness in some ways being a panacea. And we can't get say that based on the state of the evidence. And part of the reason why we can't say that is because a lot of the studies have limitations. So they might have uh, a study design that's not um, very rigorous, or they might use a passive control group rather than an active control group, 
or they might have a selection bias where they're actually um, already enrolling people that are predisposed to believe that mindfulness is really useful and really helpful. So there's a number of limitations that exist in the field. And what I often tell people is that mindfulness is still um, uh, kind of in its infancy and it's still um, growing and there's a lot to learn. And so hold a lot of what you read and hear about with a grain of salt. What is an example of a claim about mindfulness that you've heard that you think has been overstated? I think one of the uh, questions that I often get that kind of stems from an overclaim is this idea that mindfulness will cure a particular mental health issue and therefore it'll mean that I can stop taking my medications. And I hear that because there's a lot of these claims that uh, mindfulness is therapeutic and what it means then is that for the average uh, person, when we hear this or we read an article in you know, uh, some kind of publication, there can be this idea that, oh, it's going to cure me of this. It's a fix. And I often have to spend a lot of time with people and say, that's not the case. That's actually um, not what we could say based on the evidence. We can say that it might be helpful in some ways, but that's going to vary from person to person. And it's also gonna vary from condition to condition. So you can try mindfulness as an addition to something you might already be doing, but don't look to it as a cure-all or a replacement. Is there a specific condition or a few specific conditions specifically that mindfulness has not shown to be helpful and maybe even has shown to be detrimental for? There's a growing um, movement right now, which I'm really thrilled about, uh, is to look at what are called um, adverse events or adverse effects. And it's just the kind of technical term for exactly what you're naming. When is it that things uh, or conditions might be not supportive to practice? It might even be harmful. So one of the areas uh, that's being actively looked at right now is in the area of trauma. And there's a lot of work that's going on, particularly out of, um, I believe it's Brown, um, if I'm remembering correctly, but the, the researcher's name is Willoughby Britton. And so Willoughby has been looking a lot at uh, these issues of when mindfulness practice is actually not helpful, particularly if, uh, you're, um, if you have PTSD or you're working with um, uh, other uh, challenges, maybe like chronic uh, mental um, uh, health issues. Uh, it could be things like um, uh, schizophrenia or um, could be uh, bipolar. Uh, and in those situations, you really want to err on the side of being cautious, and you want to make sure that whatever teacher um, you're practicing with has an understanding of that and actually has some training in that area, and also that the um, curriculum is supportive of that. So there are specific programs for mindfulness for chronic depression, and there are specific programs that are um, very condition-specific, and that's often where that's a better fit because the curriculum recognizes that, the teacher is trained in it, and there's also a recognition that mindfulness is not a replacement. It's simply another approach that you might try in addition to uh, the standard forms of care that are recommended. So that takes us a bit into our topic for today of apps, because I think with the sensationalized media coverage that you were mentioning earlier, there's a danger of people trying to self-medicate with mindfulness using these apps where they never even have any teacher, much less a teacher who's trained in their specific condition. 
That's absolutely right. In fact, uh, back in, uh, this is almost a year ago, a uh, year ago, almost to the day, uh, in June, there was an announcement uh, that came out and a, a number of uh, uh, media outlets picked it up. And the headline essentially was that Headspace, which is one of the most popular and widely used uh, mindfulness apps, was aiming to be the first FDA-approved prescription meditation app. So to me, that's exactly the point that you're raising, which is that the app is now being presented as a prescription. So you would go into your doctor and say, oh, it looks like you have a lot of anxiety. Let me write you a prescription for this FDA-approved meditation app. And for me as a, as a teacher and a researcher, that gives me a lot of pause. And the reason why I, I pause when I um, you know, read a headline like that is because we know that it's not that simple. We know that um, even if we look at some of the oldest models, the biopsychosocial model, the, the psycho part or the psychological component is one dimension. There's also a biological dimension and there's a social dimension. And so apps are really only at best giving us kind of um, this educational, psychoeducational component. Oftentimes, though, they fall short of that. They often maybe just are edutainment or infotainment so that we're getting these small little five-minute, you know, sound bites that are very different from having a sustained practice with the teacher or from getting training um, over a number of years, that's not always uh, pleasant. There are times of difficulty and challenge, and that's where having a teacher in a community really matters. When you run into those challenges, that's when you're most likely to quit. And people who either are going through the same thing you're going through or have been there can help so much in preventing unnecessary suffering and unnecessary challenge and, and even just giving up on something that actually could be helpful for you. But it's very difficult to do it in isolation. My understanding is that these the app designers do their best to harness what we know about how the human mind works to help us create a habit, to create a, a positive habit using the apps. Can you tell me more from your perspective about what you think are the benefits of these apps and then also potentially the drawbacks? Absolutely. So I think you're right that the apps, um, the one of the advantages that they have is that there's a lot of energy that's going into how can we um, present information in a way that's easily digestible? How might we be able to sustain attention uh, for a user that's using the app? How might we be able to set up simple mechanisms that create behavior change, such as if I send you a notification that says, it's three o'clock, you said that you were gonna meditate, make sure you meditate, or you haven't been back for a week, why don't you come back into the app and see some new content, or how's your stress level, right? It's almost like, the phenomenon with Fitbits and Apple Watches where they give you that little buzz that says, stand up, you've been sitting for a long time. So there's a way in which uh, app designers and really anybody in that's kind of using technology or in the space of e-health, um, they're, they're quite good at being able to engineer and design um, these aspects, uh, what I would say from a design perspective. The part that I, I think that they're really limited in still is in the content area. And that's because to really um, deliver 
uh, content that is not just infotainment or edutainment requires that you have a whole variety of skills around knowing how adult learning theory works, knowing about behavior change strategies, knowing what the literature and the evidence suggests about what might be harmful or what might be helpful, what are some areas of caution, and being able to design all of that um, as part of the content and the curriculum, which is a very different task than I'm going to give you a, a four-minute module that you can pop in and pop out of. I'm seeing, though, a lot of the apps are now moving in this direction. In fact, it's a, it's a phenomenon that a lot of app companies are now hiring um, academics to come work for them because they're recognizing that they need to work a lot on this content and they need to get experts in, in the fields of adult learning theory or psychology or behavior change. Um, and so that's a trend that's starting to happen. Uh, but again, I, I really think that the limitation is, is that the app is always going to be a machine to human interface. Even if there's a human on the other side, the medium is still through the technology. And that's qualitatively different than when you're in a community class or you're with a teacher and you're actually in that space of shared presence and you're able to have a conversation and a dialogue, it's much more dynamic. And there's just so many more variables and factors uh, that go into that in-person um, exchange rather than it being mediated through technology. That goes back to that social piece of this biopsychosocial model. Exactly the piece that maybe we've given uh, not enough attention to over the past few decades. Yes, and I would say, as one of my colleagues here at the University of Minnesota says, um, her name is Teresa Glum, she says, we talk a lot about um, IQ, about EQ, but we don't talk so much about AQ, this attentional quotient. Mm. And what I find so interesting about that is that I can extend that observation because I think we are in, uh, we're in the app age, uh, like it or love it or hate it. Uh, and the other thing is that we know that also there's this idea of in a, you know, an attention economy so that our attention is constantly being bombarded with all these requests like, oh, I should check my phone, I should do this, I got an email notification or whatever it is, or my Apple Watch just buzzed. And um, what that means is that unless we know that that's going on, and unless we also know that if our attention is solely um, drawn to areas of technology, that is that it's actually out of the relational dimension, or it's out of even what we might call body awareness, interceptive awareness, then we're missing critical information. Uh, and I think we can see this, right? I mean, we have a general sense that so much of the world right now is lost in thought. And I, and I think about it in terms of just looking around at the environment. We're so disconnected from our environment. And I believe that's because our attention is, we're spending too much time in the area of technology and thought-based um, areas as opposed to that kind of attentional quality where we're in relationship to our environment, where we have a better sense of what's happening in our own body. Do you use any mindfulness apps yourself regularly? Uh, I don't, but I often get asked the question of uh, what apps do you recommend? And so I've checked out a lot of the apps that are out there um, and I can't stay on top of it because there's so much that's going on. In fact, um, you know, some of the 
the numbers about it are that there's this whole mindfulness industry. So as of, I think it was 2017, they estimated it was a $1.2 billion industry. And that, um, to give you an example, Headspace, um, one of the, the largest apps, had received, I think it was like $36 million of investment in 2017. So this gives you a sense of the scale and the size of what's happening. Um, so it's impossible to stay on top of it, but what I do know is that there are certain apps. And so I often recommend um, Insight Timer because it's a free app. It's actually produced by um, meditation teachers uh, that are making their um, guided meditations and information available on the app for free. And it comes out of that history. Um, I also recommend 10% uh, Happier from Dan Harris. That is a paid app, but what I like about it is I know everyone that he's working with, and I know that the intentions of the people with whom he's inviting on to the app and doing these modules, they have a deep, deep practice. And so I always, I always look at who's involved in the apps, what's their training, what's their background, what's their motivation, um, and that makes a, a big difference in terms of what I might recommend. I actually have a meditation on the Insight Timer. That's great. So, and have you found that useful? Not really. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I recorded it about a year ago and it took them like nine months to approve it. Uh, so I haven't noticed any kind of traffic coming from it or anything like that, but that's fine. It was just, it was an experiment. I was recording some meditations and I thought I would upload one and I'm, I may do more. I find that for content marketing, if you want people to find you through your content, you kind of need to do it with a regular, on a regular basis. So my podcast has been tremendously helpful and successful for me because I put one out every single week. To do one meditation, I wouldn't really expect a, a result from that necessarily. But I have to admit that I was a little bit discouraged by them taking nine months to approve it. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I appreciate you sharing that because um, it is one of the, the challenges, which is that Insight Timer, and I, I know them um, just through my own interactions with them. So, you know, I'll just, for the benefit of the podcast, say take all of this with a grain of salt. But the origins of Insight Timer came out of a community effort to try to make things available. They weren't, uh, and often freely available, so they weren't coming from a perspective of a business that is um, trying to provide a lot of the service and support that we would typically expect. So, you know, from a business perspective, a nine-month wait period is unbelievable. Um, from a kind of a, a volunteer, community-based, grassroots organization, I'm not surprised. Um, and so, but you raise a really good point about um, wanting to find that right balance of, particularly as teachers, where do you put your energies? Where do you put your efforts? Um, and Insight Timer does not, at least last time I checked, curate content. Whereas something like 10% uh, Happier with Dan Harris, which is a paid app, does curate co uh, content. And so they are really worried uh, about the user experience as well as the experience of those that are contributing content to the platform. So I think you're naming a really important tension, which is that, um, you know, looking even in the app space, you can find this range of for-profit, very traditional corporate uh, endeavors and these more community-based, uh, 
you know, nonprofits, uh, just simply trying to put something out there. So there's a whole range and spectrum in between that. I'm familiar with Sam Harris. I'm not familiar with Dan Harris. Are, are we talking about the same person? It's a good question. They are two different people. So Dan Harris is actually a former news anchor who had a panic attack on uh, national TV. And so as a result of having a panic attack on national TV, really started to do some investigation about what was happening, what, uh, why was it that he had this experience and what led to it. And as part of that, became really interested in a variety of different practices and ultimately uh, became really inspired by mindfulness. And so started to write about that and wrote a book called 10% Happier about his experience and his learning about it. And then produced an app called 10% Happier where he invites on a lot of uh, mindfulness meditation teachers to talk about these different aspects of what matters and you know, how, how to practice and what might be useful. Okay, great. Perfect. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah, and I totally understand what you're saying about the Insight Timer. I didn't have a business-oriented reason for uploading that meditation. It was more of an experiment just to see, you know, if I could tap into a community there. And if you wait nine months, you know, it's like you've forgotten about that. There's no momentum right. building. <laughs> I have been a longtime user of the Insight Timer back before they had any guided meditations on it. And it was literally just a timer. And I think it's great. And I think that they're you know, offering a really wonderful service that is 100% accessible to anybody who wants meditation. There's way, there's so much content on there and you're exactly right. It's not particularly curated and it's not really that easy to search. It's yes. not really that easy to find what you need. They do also have some paid services on there now though. Oh, they I, do? Yeah, like more like courses. So for example, Tara Brock has a course on there. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if you need to have a certain status or a certain number of downloads or how that works at all. That's kind of, that would be an interesting thing to find out. But I think most app producers find out eventually you, you got to charge for something because even, I know they have like these donations you can make, but upkeeping an app and keeping it up to date, even just with the changes in the in the app stores, it costs money. Absolutely right. And that's, that's often the factor that many people don't take into account, which is that the real cost for apps is often not so much in the development. Yes, it takes a lot of money to develop the apps, but the ongoing cost of maintenance and upgrades uh, and keeping content relevant is the true cost. I had an interview recently with a gentleman who has a online yoga platform and he was sharing with me about how a lot of times on these platforms, the content creators themselves are the ones who kind of get the short end of the stick where the, whether it's the app owner or the platform owner, they take most of the profit and end up not exactly exploiting, but, you know, considering how the intellectual property is the product being sold, it, the person who created that intellectual property is not usually getting a very big percentage of the profit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is a, it's a big question and a big topic that teachers should know about, which is that um, you have to be very careful about looking at what are the terms and the conditions that are often used with apps, because many of them, and I've had this experience myself, 
uh, when you create content, often the, um, the app or the company that is producing the app wants to own that content exclusively, which then means that you can't use that in your teaching. You can't share that with somebody else. You can't even post it on your website if they want to own that exclusively. And then if that's the case, you want to make sure that um, what they're offering in exchange for owning uh, the content that you create is fair. And if it's not, then you have to look really long and hard at, the, at whether you want to do it. And I think that's often another dimension that's not talked about, and, it, and yet it's critically important because it gets to the very heart of the issue of livelihood um, and how is it that as a teacher you can really support your own livelihood. And it's very easy to fall into one of these, uh, these pitfalls and not know it. What advice do you have for yoga teachers who want to make sure that they're getting fairly compensated? The, I'd say the first advice is to um, really look at the, um, the terms and the conditions, and these are often buried. I mean, it's unfortunate, but this is, the, again, part of the age that we're in. You know, it's in the fine print. It's buried somewhere in there. Um, so I'd actually make sure you look at um, the terms of service or you're looking at the agreement. If there's an agreement that they're having you sign, sometimes it might just be they send you an email with all the boilerplate and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I I click accept all the time on my computer, so I don't really need to look at this. But you do, because you want to look through and see, is there anything about ownership or copyright? And is there anything in there? Again, you know, I can't give legal advice, but what I can say is if I was in that, um, that situation, I'd look for anything that says I'm transferring ownership or somehow I'm being hired as a contractor to deliver a product. And those are some of the typical uh, things that I look for to make sure that, you know, what are the terms of uh, what's being negotiated here? And then the second thing is to recognize, I think, as you highlighted, that teachers are adding a lot of value. Uh, there's a lot of um, human capital and experience and knowledge and practice that comes from uh, the lived experience of being a teacher and to not undervalue that. And so to not be afraid to say, no, this isn't a fit and to explore the range of different uh, options that are out there. So there are so many apps, there are so many online platforms, and there's so many different ways that you might be able to uh, achieve the goal of having a stronger online presence. Sometimes it feels like there are so many yoga teachers, there are so many meditation teachers, maybe less people who are purely meditation teachers. You know, if you compare demand with the number of teachers out there, it's probably a similar space as far as, wow, there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of people offering this, how do I stand out? And, and it can be easy to start to feel some fear around whether it's other teachers, like other teachers are offering this online, or even, well, if people have apps and they're doing yoga at home, why should they come to my classes? How is it that we as teachers can communicate the value of this in-person learning to our students to help them? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little bit jumbled here because there's two different threads, right? The first thread is we need to own the value ourselves and, and stand in that understanding of how important the in-person experience is, and then two, to communicate that to our students. Yes, and I would say that I think uh, your kind of phrasing is exactly right, which is that you understand uh, the value of 
being a teacher that has your own practice that has um, you know gone on the, this journey of your own growth um, and then being able to find how do you communicate that um, with students and with uh, communities and I often, you know, from my training, um, I go back to some of the really early descriptions that said that the nature of the teachings are invaluable. You can't put a value to them. And, and that's why they're so uh, useful is because that um, it, the, they're meant to be offered um, as something that is considered invaluable. And so the minute that we get into that dimension of trying to assign a specific value to it, it often brings up fear. And it, you know, it does for me, it does for others. There's, this is a very common um, experience when I talk to a lot of colleagues and other teachers and friends. And so, but when I find that I'm able to sit in my own practice from that place of really, this practice is invaluable. I know it from my own experience. It's been invaluable for me. And then I can speak from that place it's so much different because when I speak from the place of fear, it's almost like what I'm telegraphing is a mentality of scarcity and students can feel that, right? I can feel that when I hear other people that are speaking more from a place of fear and scarcity. And so in that way, I, I encourage a lot of people take it on as a practice. Can you take it on as a practice to feel confident and to know from your own direct experience that what you're offering is invaluable uh, if that's the case from your own experience and then to speak confidently from that space because it'll resonate with others And I also find that there's such a yearning right now. I see so many um, Young adults that are yearning for community that are yearning for connection because they're growing up in a world where Connection is mediated through screens. It's mediated through uh, chatbots and what's really missing is a yearning for that kind of in-person embodied communal experience and so I often encourage teachers to really look at that and uh, can you can you highlight more aspects of community in your class so simple things can be do you do an, uh, a simple round of names at the beginning of your class just so that everybody knows each other's names do you take a moment to check in and just get some feedback from the class or the community. At the end of it, do you do some kind of dedication to the whole community or do another check-in or another round of names? Do you allow spaces for connection and, and gathering and discussion afterwards? So there's all these little things that you can do to help nurture community. I love that. What, what a beautiful antidote to the way that our culture has shifted into this less personal, more electronic type of connection. I also really love what you said about going back to your own practice. And I think that this is, this is a theme that comes up over and over on this podcast is that we often want the words to be fed to us from the outside. Tell me what to say, give me a formula, tell me how to do this. And what we're teaching is not something that follows a formula and it's not something that can be adequately communicated from the outside. It has to be shared from your lived experience. And that is why many teachers always, as they advise other teachers or newer teachers, go back to your practice, go back to your practice because there's a cumulative effect of these small bursts of practice. It doesn't have to be hours at a time to accumulate over many years of that lived experience. And then the ability to really share from a place of 
really deep knowing that this is one of the healing balms for humanity. This is one of the ways that humanity can heal a lot of the suffering and the pain that we have caused each other and we've caused the planet. Absolutely. And I would say um, in my own experience, when I remember to be embodied and I remember to be in community, I'm tapping into a deep, deep root system that goes back thousands of years, of which I am just a small blip. But because that root system is so deep and so extensive and it goes across location and time, I'm really grounded and connected to something that's got depth. When I move into a mindset of, oh, it's me and I'm scared and I don't know what to do and I'm alone. And, and you know, there are times when this mindset comes in and it's strong. I don't have that root system. And so I try to really put into practice what I know to be true from my own experience, which is I know that I need to regularly check in with other teachers. I need to have a community of fellow teachers to be able to talk about these things, to be able to learn from each other, to practice together in community. I also know that I really have to emphasize being in my body because there's so much of our culture right now that's an up and an out. So this idea that sort of you know, spiritual growth is an ascension and it's an out of the systems. Like we're removing ourselves from the messiness of the world. And to me, that's a bypass. Really what growth is, is it's a dissension and it's an in. You're moving into the messiness of the systems. You're actually embedded in them and you're embodied. And that's a very different movement from what's happening, I think, um, for a lot of society right now is a sort of up and out mentality. At least that's what I encounter a lot. Yeah, I resonate and and can relate to what you're saying right now completely. My goal is to move through the world present. Mm. And it's 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 like having tap roots, but you know, it's like the tree that sways in the breeze but doesn't fall down because it's able to move with what's going on and you know I the, just this morning I have two children, one of them's in high school, one of them's in preschool and it's, it was both of their last day of school for the year and I make cupcakes, which is kind of because <laughs> my, my preschoolers changing schools. And so it was a very, very hectic morning and there were definitely some high emotions. And <laughs> as I closed the door and everybody had left, I kind of like leaned against the door and I was like, Oh, I didn't lose it. Like I <laughs> present, <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen every single time that, you know, that things get, get chaotic, but that's the heart of the practice for me. Yes. And I, I, re I really appreciate that example because I too am a parent and so I have a two-year-old daughter and, you know, she knows when I am not fully present, there are no words that need to be said. She knows when, you know, when daddy's present and when he's not. And the other thing that I find so amazing is that you know, she's a sponge. She picks up so much, right? So if my behaviors at home are constantly interacting with my phone and checking my phone, she mimics those behaviors in play. She'll pick up a, a remote to the TV and start pushing the buttons because she's like, oh, I'm calling Gamma. I need to call Gamma and let her know that, you know, and so it's just like, you know, she, I'm seeing it play, play out right in front of my eyes. And so that's where, again, I go back to, um, I don't know why this is popping into my mind, but there was a, a recent, this is sort of my academic side coming out. There was a recent uh, uh, 
kind of major article that was published in the Annual Review of Psychology. And what I loved about it was uh, it was about embodiment, about this idea of being in relationship to the environment, and about how that enables new behaviors, new ways of thinking, and new ways of learning, which I thought was so great because it was like so many times, you know, I hear all these studies coming out or I, I talk to other people and it, it's so much about uh, the psychological understanding the mind and this, this really important article that was published in the annual review of annual review of psychology basically was going, no, nope, it really matters that you're embodied and that you're in relationship with your environment. And in fact, we can look at how motor development and these skills of embodiment and being in contact with your environment are critical to healthy psychological development. And I went, yes, finally. I love that. I have a podcast coming out shortly before this one is released that is about spiritual bypassing and mm. about the it's through the lens of the Bhagavad Gita and how really it, we need to as practitioners and as teachers we need to stay in the world and in our environment and you know to me that extends also we need to be outside more we need to be in nature we need to <laughs> put our hands in the dirt and you know, walk through the grass and put our feet in the, in the water. Absolutely. And this is, again, why it's so critical um, when we talk about apps is because without that experience, our frame of reference is, you know, what we get through our screens. And I, I take the bus to and from work every day. And I'm, I always do a little bit of my own kind of um, you know, I don't know what you call it, anthropology, where I just observe and I'm noticing what's going on. And I've watched over the last, uh, I don't know, I'd say five years, um, as I take the bus, how more and more of us are just constantly uh, glued to those little pocket monsters that, you know, we carry around. And we're just staring into the screen, into this other world. Um, and I don't see people having conversations on the bus. I don't see them even looking out the window to notice the passing scenery. And I'm guilty of it myself, right? I'll, I'll be sitting on the bus and I'll think, oh, this is a great opportunity to check my email or to you know, get a few more to-dos done. And, but what I'm missing is that each time I do that, I'm reinforcing a habit and a pattern that's taking me away from my environment and it's taking me away from being aware of my body. And so I have to counterbalance that. I have to, that's another practical thing is to be really intentional. Like at the beginning of the day, set an intention. I need to remember my body. I need to remember that I'm in the world and that I need to pay attention to the world. I need to actually experience it and be present for it. Absolutely. On the other side of it, though, there is a tremendous amount of learning and, and other types of connection that do come through these, these devices. For one thing, this podcast, most people listen on the, you know, on their phone. And there's a difference to me and in my lived experience from looking at the device and just using it for audio. When I go on walks, for example, I will alternate between a silent walk and a walk where I'm listening to something. And when I'm, you know, when I'm listening to something on audio, I'm still very present with my visual and sensory inputs of sensation and sight. And I'm getting my sound from a different place and my mind is very happily engaged in this really 
in this state of learning where my body is moving. So my body's really happy because it's moving and it's got this blood, the blood is flowing in a really wonderful way. So I want to put a little shout out to this new way that we have of being able to learn auditorily. And I know that not everybody can. Some people, some people have a hard time taking in information that way. It really works for me because I really love allowing my body to be in motion while I take in information. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because um, it's not that, um, you know, apps are bad and that we need to, you know, throw them out and say they're terrible. In fact, they, they're tremendously useful. I mean, as you're highlighting, uh, it provides greater accessibility, right? I mean, the fact that you can access information or you can get resources that previously we, we couldn't do because the technology didn't exist to access it in this way. And so I always go back to that simple uh, perspective of it's all about moderation and finding what is the right mix that is supportive without creating what we might think of as addictive tendencies that then take away from other areas of our own well-being and our own health. And so finding that balance is, is a practice uh, for each of us and finding what's supportive and maybe where is it I'm, I'm cultivating or um, developing uh, um, skills or patterns that may not be so supportive to my own health and well-being. And, you know, in my own case, one of those uh, kind of reckoning moments was uh, how much screen time do I do right before I go to bed? And noticing the impact of uh, on my sleep, you know, if I check the news before I go to bed on my phone or on, you know, my, my tablet or something, uh, it's going to impact my ability to wind down at the end of the day and to sleep. And then that's going to impact my ability to teach the next day. And so finding, you know, what, what is the right mix of what's useful and what's not. It's also interesting that you bring up um, the different number of senses involved because uh, there are um, some colleagues that I work with here at the university. We do work in virtual reality. And one of the interesting phenomenons uh, or phenomena within virtual reality is that to create the illusion of being in another world requires multiple senses. So when we can only use one sense, we're less likely to get that quality of immersion. So when you just listen to audio, but your visual system is doing something else and your motor system is doing something else, you're less fully immersed in whatever that experience is, so that you're actually able to still be connected to the outside world because you're not using multiple senses at once. Whereas if I pop in you know, iPod buds or earbuds and watch it on my phone, that's a, that's a different experience because I'm engaging both the visual and the auditory and I've uh, created more um, sensory substitution. And that makes a lot of sense. And especially since our visual sense is so dominant, that's the one that tends to be where we feel most present is wherever, wherever we're looking at. Absolutely. Do you have any other last words for yoga teachers? You don't want to totally remove yourself from what's going on because then you just, you don't know. And most of the world is using apps. And so you want to know what's going on. And so I would say just be very practical about it, which is um, the first thing is uh, you can check out the apps yourself, see what you think of them. So first approach it from your own perspective of being a user. What do you think of these apps? Try them out. So would you recommend this to a friend, a family member, to a student? 
Um, and then what I would say is think about how the apps can be in the background. How can they be a complement rather than a substitution to what you're doing as a teacher? Because what you're doing on the, in the social realm of the communal uh, space, as well as the, uh, the kind of the biological the embodiment, the actually being together in the same space at the same time, that is so important. And so being able to bring that to the foreground where the app is in the background and it's more of a wraparound. The other last thing that I might say is um, to know a little bit just about the research around apps. And so this is the last bit I'll say. There's not a lot of studies that have looked at, rigorous studies, I should say, that have looked at the long-term effects of using an app versus in-person. There's a few. And so there was a recent study that was done in 2018 that compared an in-person group, so this is a mindfulness group, with an app-based approach. And they had different measures looking at what was the effect. And what they found was that the in-person mindfulness group actually showed improvement in uh, the measures of well-being, the measures of stress, and the measure of emotional burnout. And this is over time. So it was right after the program ended, as well as at a three-month follow-up. For the app, what they found was only improvement in this area of well-being, this kind of general measure of, oh, how's your well-being? And so that indicates that there are actual differences below the surface that really matter that are going on when we're in person. Uh, compared to what we might just get from an app. And so that would be my biggest advice is to really uh, remember the value that you provide as a teacher by being there in the flesh, by helping to support and nourish community, and then allowing the apps to be in the background as support after you've checked them out yourself. And you're involved in another startup that might be beneficial to yoga teachers specifically. Do you want to share a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So myself and a number of other um, friends uh, started a, a benefit corporation, and it was really meant to try to simplify all of the administrative uh, and technological uh, headaches of teaching so that teachers could spend more time teaching and less time on technology. And our whole goal was uh, we actually have this public benefit mission, which is to um, further access and education around wellness. And so to do that, what we try to do is um, provide all of the support that teachers need to be able to offer what they're trained to offer and what they're passionate about without having to spend so much time in the technology and the administrative dimensions. So we offer a kind of a whole uh, platform that allows you to get up and running in 10 minutes and you can take donations, you can take uh, payments if you have a fee for your class, you can schedule things, you you get a website, you can do a newsletter, but it's all integrated into one place and it's trying to make it as easy as possible. And we're doing that because we want to support this in-person process. We don't want to create another app that's just out there. We want to enable the in-the-flesh teaching and have multiple teachers in all these different communities being able to provide that. So you're harnessing the technology to help support the in-person that's exactly right. So the technology is in the background to empower and enable the individual in the foreground. And what is that, what is that service called? Yes, thank you. It's called <laughs> Offering Tree. And so if you go to www.offeringtree.com, uh, you can learn more about it and you can uh, see a little bit about what we offer and uh, what our mission is. Thank you so much, Alex. This was a really fun conversation. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It was really a privilege and a delight to, to be with you today. I love what Alex said about harnessing technology to support in-person teaching. That is exactly what I hope to do through this podcast and through my upcoming small group coaching program, which starts in September. Even when we do teach in person, it can be lonely as a yoga teacher. When we're in the seat of the teacher, it's not the same as having peer support or peer mentorship. As an introvert, I sometimes resist seeking connection, the connection that I need for my own health and flourishing. I'm grateful for the upsides of technology because it's allowed me to find a tribe of peers and of mentors that I connect with regularly where the back and forth interaction fills a need for understanding, empathy, and reflection. That's very different from a human to machine interaction, as Alex was describing as the limitation of the mindfulness apps. So truthfully, this podcast has the same limitation, but there are ways to use technology to have that back and forth, such as when I work with people one-on-one, or in small groups as a coach and as a mentor. If you want to have that kind of relationship with me, have more of a back and forth, please do check out the small group coaching programs at teachingyoga.net slash group dash coaching. I record these podcasts in advance, so I am not sure whether or not there'll be space left in September's groups when this episode releases, but there will be a place to sign up for a wait list for the future either way. As of this recording, one out of the three groups is currently full, so there's also a chance that I'll open up another group based on the interest on the wait list and based on my own schedule. For those of you seeking simple tech solutions for your website, your scheduling, and payment, I also hope you'll check out Alex's company, Offering Tree. Go to offeringtree.com slash mado, that's M-A-D-O. That way we'll be able to track that you found them through this podcast. They also offer the first month for just 99 cents. And then after that, it's still a very reasonable cost for the service. And if you feel like you need more than just one month to try it out, sign up and just shoot me an email at helloyogateacher at gmail.com and I can talk to them and get them to extend that to three months for 99 cents a month. So just let me know if that's something that you want. That's all for this week. I am recording this in a small apartment in the Netherlands where I've been for the past month, spending a lot of extra time with my three and a half year old, which has been lovely. She and I have been doing a lot of movement and games and practice and play together and so I've been not so focused on my online community so it's kind of interesting to dip back in to record this but I have had a few sessions with some clients and what I love about technology and the way that we can program things in advance is that her impression was that I was still very present. So I love that. And I just want you to know that you are in my thoughts a lot, even if I'm not technologically present. I I feel this 
sense of purpose and intention that really sits with me all the time. I don't seem to be able to get away with from it. Not that I want to get away from it, but my brain is always thinking about the podcast and the people that I'm connecting to through the podcast and how I can better serve them. So if you have thoughts and ideas around that and you want to get in touch, I already said the email address as far as letting me know about the offering tree opportunity to extend that 99 cents a month, but you can use the same email address, teacher at gmail.com, just to connect with me and let me know what you'd like to hear about on the podcast and what topics or concepts you'd be interested in going deeper on in an online course with me. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope you're able to make time for self-care and make time for your personal practice, which doesn't have to be long, can be really short, but it's a, a time to connect with what's really important to you, with what your deepest values are, and so that you can live from there. 